Coming up today on the Lead to Succeed podcast. I think any leader, regardless of whether you're leading veterans or, or, uh, or non-veterans, in this time especially, they've got to establish purpose, communicate purpose throughout their organization, and communicate where their team members fit in, how they are the cogs in the machine to create the greater good that they're trying to achieve. And when we do that, great things happen. Do you want to learn the tricks that top leaders use to get the most out of themselves and their teams? Well, Naftali Hoff is here to help lead to succeed. Picks the brains of top leaders to learn about their challenges, insights, and best practices. Here's Naftali. Hello, Lead to Succeed Nation. It's Naftali Hoff, and welcome to Lead to Succeed, episode 88. This episode is sponsored by the Impactful Business Leadership Mastermind. The mastermind brings together hungry entrepreneurs and business owners who want to scale their business, get their toughest problems solved, learn best practices, and build their networks. Learn more at impactfulcoaching.com forward slash BLM. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Paul Huzar. Paul is the CEO of VetCorp a restoration company focused on creating employment opportunities for veterans. We love our veterans. He is also the CEO of Team VetCore, which focuses on creating business ownership opportunities for veterans and their families through franchising VetCore. Paul is a retired army officer himself. He graduated from West Point and then served 23 years on active duty, including four combat tours in Iraq. He commanded a 1,000-soldier and airman joint task force in uh, 2009-2010 and last served as the dean of the Army's Engineer School. His passion is creating sustainable and meaningful employment opportunities and now business ownership opportunities for our nation's heroes. Paul, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Well, thanks for having me, Nathalie, and uh, really also for you, your comments about veterans and for caring so much about our, our nation's heroes. I appreciate yeah, that. No, that's really great. I don't, I don't know if I've had, I, I did mention in our, in our pre-recording conversation, a past guest, uh, Phil Gerbyshak, who's a wonderful guy, uh, a vet, and I, I believe that there are other vets who I've hosted um, on the podcast before, certainly within my network. But I don't believe I've had anyone who is giving back to the community as much as you are uh, and really creating opportunities for vets who are obviously our heroes. People have given so much to our country and our country really needs that type of volunteerism, that type of support, that type of commitment. Um, So thank you. You know, thank you for being here. Thank you for what you do. And I would love to start with a question just relating to helping people understand more of the challenges more of the struggles that veterans face. So I'd like for you to unpack that a little bit and what led to what you do currently, you know, your role in providing opportunities for them. How did you get started with that? Well, thanks, that's a, it's a great question. So, you know, most people, most veteran advocates come on and talk about the, the qualities of veterans of, you know, teamwork and duty and their sense of responsibility and all those things. And, and those, I, I admittedly, are fantastic characteristics. But I'm not sure that the companies out there hire and fire based on those values. They may fire based on the lack of those, and in, in, you know, in, in the end, when something comes up. But I'm not sure. So I, I try and take a different approach, and, and also I try and explain the challenges that I personally experienced, 
And as I studied that, um, to share those kind of lessons. And, and one of those lessons is this. Um, when you think about it, whether it's um, a veteran, someone like me who went to West Point for four years and then 23 years in the Army, or whether it's someone, a young man or woman who enlisted right out of high school, typically the age of 18, and let's say served a tour of four or five years of enlistment and then got out, um, it was either those four or five years as enlisted or 27 years for someone like me, all of those years were their adult years from 18 years on, right? So they learned how to be an adult through the cultures, norms, and values of the US military, right? And so now let's think about when they enter the workforce, transitioning from their service, right? How does one get a job or an opportunity? And typically, you know, it's, it's creating a resume. And if we're intellectually honest about a resume, you know, what is that? One page typically front and back. And, and if, I, you know, if, I'm, if I'm trying to get hired by you, it, it's really an opportunity for me to tell you how great I am in one piece, piece of paper or electrons front and back, right? And then in the event that you can navigate through uh, the, the challenges we have with explaining what we did in the military, and those are pretty significant as well, as well as credentialing challenges and things, then we get an interview. And an interview is, if we're intellectually honest, is really you know, some time, again, for me to tell you how great I am and why you should hire me on your team. Now think back to what I just said about those cultures, norms, and values in the military. We are not raised to talk about ourselves. It's about the team. And so vets are very uncomfortable about kind of highlighting their own self and what they can do. In mm -hmm. fact, counter to that, in the cultures, norms, and values, it, you're, you're, you're kind of spurned and, and um, disincentivized from talking about that stuff. So now is it any wonder why vets have a terrible time creating resumes and interviewing and when I talk to people, they say, well, that's what, that's what we want. We want servant leaders. We want people who are, are all about the team. The challenge is the system that's designed. They're not prepared for that well. Mm -hmm. And they execute that stuff well. Does that make sense? Oh, it sure does. It sure does, which actually begs a question. You know, I'm a former educator, school leader. I, I talk about my background all the time um, on this show mm -hmm. and elsewhere. And, and the reason I mention that is because one of the things that I see as a big problem in the world of education is let's call it life preparedness. Yes. You know, there, there's often not a correlation between people who are, I mean, I have two master's degrees and a doctorate. So I'm not, you know, normally I'd be the person in the front of the line saying, Oh, go get your, go get your degrees, go get, you know, all of your credentials possible. I've got certifications. I've got rabbinic ordination, you name it. I pretty much have it. And at the same time, you know, I do not see a correlation necessarily between some of the pieces of paper, let's say, that I've accumulated and my ability to do the work that I do. Now, yes, I've, I've picked up a lot of it, but most of it is experiential in nature. You know, they could teach me in theory how to be a good classroom instructor, but until I'm in the classroom, until I'm actually going through the process on a day-to-day -day basis, the theory doesn't necessarily translate into practice. It's the actual activity that provides that opportunity and gives me the wherewithal, the confidence, the, the sense of self, and also the, the, the context around me to do my very best work. So bringing this, bringing this point home, you know, now I'm thinking to myself, well, what do schools need to be doing differently? 
to help students graduate with the kind of skills they need to succeed in the workplace. Collaboration, um, you know, the ability to think creatively, uh, the ability to, you know, just do the kinds of things that teams need rather than individuals need. And so translating that into a, um, an army perspective, my question to you is, and you may not have the answer because, you know, it was like the equivalent of me calling up the city today and saying, are you guys going to be salting the, the, the roads? Because we had some sleet this morning. And, you know, she's telling me whatever she's telling me. It's not, she's just the, you know, she's just the messenger. So I can go yell and scream at the messenger for, for not doing what I want to see done on the streets fast enough. But that person has no ability to make change. So yelling is only going to be only going to make me feel good. It's not going to it's not going to change anything. So my question to you, Paul, the, the, the really short question that I've said in a very long way <laughs> is, do you see the military aware of this issue in a real way to the point where they are doing more, perhaps, or have they been doing more to ready people, not only in terms of how they market themselves with the resumes and the interviews, but also the life skills that translate well out of the military um, theater, if you will, to, to the workplace where most folks are gonna have to continue if they're gonna have a life uh, of plenty and take care of their families. There, there are really two aspects of that that you mentioned. Um, the, there's one, there's the credential piece, right? And, and there's a challenge just with that. And I'll explain it th this way. When I was the, the Dean of the Army's Engineer School, my title was the Director of Training and Leader Development. And, and so the military has this way of creating titles that don't necessarily match civilian skill sets. So I just say I was the Dean because you know what the Dean of a school does, right? But as the Dean, uh, I was responsible for the training and training development of 12 occupational specialties, plumbers, carpenters, electricians, skilled trades, that you would think would have no problem translating those skill sets into the civilian world. Mm -hmm. The challenge, and this gets back to kind of why I am where I am and, and why I'm passionate about doing this. The challenge is when you train those people at one centralized location and then send them to 50 different states, because we train the National Guard as well, right? Um, you know where the credentialing authority for the pieces of paper resides for those skilled trades? It's at the state level. And so have you ever tried to get 50 states to agree on one common standard of anything? And so the reality is those skilled trades, the, the military does a great job of training them, but the pieces of paper that they come with are non-existent from the credentialing standpoint because they don't meet the, because the, the credentialing authority, the licensing authority to become an electrician, a plumber, et cetera, is at the state. And so you could be a 20 year veteran and, and leave the military with great skills, but you don't have the civilian credential equivalent. So that's one aspect. The second aspect, so they do a great job of training, but we don't do a great job of translating that to something that can be really used and understood well in the civilian world. Mm -hmm. The other thing is then, you know, people think if you wear a military uniform, you're good at shooting, moving, and communicating, but they don't realize that it, what it takes to run the military is what it takes to run a city. You have doctors and nurses and engineers, you know, all those things. But, but there's this stigma attached that we shoot, move, and communicate. And we're at a point in time where less than half a percent of the population actively serves in the military, and only about 7% of the population have ever served are veterans. So we all look at the world through our own lens, right? And because 93% of the world out there looks through the lens 
of not having served and fewer and fewer people have a cousin, a neighbor or someone who serves, they don't understand that. And the military doesn't do a good job of preparing us to explain what we did, both in terms of the vernacular, the, the, the words that describe it, the credentials, the formal certifications, et cetera, but also just trying to help explain who we are, what we did. Yeah, that's a huge challenge and that's a shame. I mean, I don't know that there's anything we can do in this conversation to change that, but I think it's important. You know, I want to translate that in a sense to, let's call it regular folks, people who haven't served, but people who run businesses. And um, and so I'm curious to know, again, you're, you're in a bit of a niche business in a way, but what are your thoughts, Paul, about just training your people in general? Like, how do you, what do you, what do you look for, not just in terms of, well, let's, add, let me ask you like this, for your, for your own for your own business, and I do want to talk about what your business is and, 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 and what special, let's call it, service you provide, but from an onboarding standpoint, what do you look for in people? Like what qualities are the ones that, that serve you well? And since you've been in training for a long time, both in the Army uh, and since, uh, what do you find is the best practices to help your people, even if they're coming to you with some deficits, because all people come with some kind of deficit, right? They all need to learn something about the business. They don't come in fully ready to roll. What are your, what are your uh, strategies, if you will, to yeah. onboard people quickly? So one, I think we see talent typically much differently, right? Um, because we've been in the military, we're used to changing jobs and duty locations every three to four years. I, I went from, at the time I served, there were only three airborne engineer battalions in the army. Uh, literally uh, drop bulldozers, graders, scrapers out of uh, out of airplanes on parachutes, follow them out, build runways in the middle of nowhere. Just mm. an incredibly uh, interesting job, highly coveted in the Corps of Engineers. I went from doing that job to being the Dean of the Army's <laughs> Engineer School. Those two things really have nothing to do with one another, right? But the Army had confidence in me to help generate um, the skill sets through self-development, but also through the institution to succeed in both of those roles, right? And they wanted someone like me to be in charge of the leader development for the future generation of the Army. So they saw talent in a much different way. They didn't look to see, hey, which one of these people out there is going to be the next dean because they have um, experience at being a dean, right? And that also goes back to the whole issue of the, the credentialing, right? What what civilian what the civilian world looks for is skills, keywords, and a resume. I don't look for that. I, I look for the soft skills, the desire to learn, the the interest, the passion, all those types of things. And then I believe that we can train the rest for the most part, because particularly with the folks that we're we're looking for and we're working with. When I started franchising, uh, I studied franchising before we took the kind of the the, the deep dive into it. And I, and I learned essentially that franchising is all about training, standardizing, and replicating. So do you know any organizations that have a great reputation in, in training, standardizing, and replicating? I mean, the US military is better at that than anyone else in the world. And so in our case, uh, my chief operating officer is a retired army sergeant major. He's an E9, enlisted nine. There are no E10s. Mm -hmm. There's no one better in the world establishing training plans, task conditions, standards, and communicating those than a, a sergeant major, an E9 in the US military. 
So we are now really a training organization. We're a restoration company at its, its heart, what the services we provide. But now through franchising, we're really a training standardizing and replicating company. And that really moves us to our sweet spot because we do that well. And the people that we're recruiting are, are, are willing to, to be lifelong learners and continue to learn because the military is an up or out, keep growing. Um, it's the greatest, in my opinion, it's the greatest leadership laboratory in the world. And we're, we're really good at self, personal, professional development. I love it. So I want to, I, I do want to give you a chance to talk more about your business, but there's one thing that came to mind as you were talking that I think would be very uh, informative, certainly for me and for others. You know, when I talk about, for example, training companies, training teams, how to delegate more. So I used to have 12 steps and then I added a 13th. And that 13th step is to build a delegation culture because oftentimes I might know all the steps of how to delegate, but if I, as a member of a team, don't know either that I can ask for things, right? In other words, that I have the right to say, I'd like to be able to do this or to be able to tell my boss, you need to let this go because you need to focus on other things for whatever the reason, then, um, then delegation may not happen the way that it needs to because certain bosses are afraid to ask too much of their peers or whatever the reasons are. So I'm thinking about it from a cultural standpoint as well. And I, I again, I may have the wrong um, paradigm in my mind as it relates to a military um, uh, a former soldier, et cetera. But normally there's a, there's a level of compliance that's expected, right? If, you, if, you, if your superior gives you, gives you an order, there's an expectation that you follow that command. Um, it doesn't work that way in civilian life, certainly not in the workplace. To a degree it does. You know, there's an expectation that you're going to follow it, um, orders. But I, as a boss, would like my people to push back to a degree, right? I want them to be able to say to me, hey, I have a different way of doing this. Hey, why don't we try it this way? And I'm not sure the military allows for that degree of, let's call it expression of, of personal view and all of that. So since we're talking about training, I'm curious to know how do, do you and how do you shift people who have been conditioned to a particular way of thinking that might be restrictive in terms of all the creativity that they possess to allow that creativity to come forth in a way that they feel comfortable since it's been not their norm for so long. So you see that up perfectly because I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to counter that. I'm going to challenge you on that. Fine. I think that's, and, and that's, a, that's a, it's an, it's an example of the lens in which we see the world, right? There's this stigma that military people and leaders follow orders and give orders and they expect them to wrote people to rotely follow those orders. Right. On the contrary, and this is the challenge, this is part of the, the things that we have to overcome. And, and I'll explain to you like this. A lot of people talk these days about kind of their the millennials, right? And you, know, you always got to explain the why to millennials. Why do you have to do that? Well, in the military, when, you, when one gives a mission, right? A mission is composed of five W's. Who, what, where, when, and why. We've been giving five W's since there's been a military. And if you want to give abbreviated mission type orders, you give task and purpose and purpose describes the why. So when I was commanding a battalion in, um, in, in Iraq, I had uh, six subordinate company commanders and I would tell them, you will see opportunities long before I ever do. 
And so as long as you understand the intent and you're willing to do what's right, you're willing to take responsibility for it, it's legal, moral, and ethical, I want you to exploit those opportunities. And, and the US military in particular is the greatest in the world because of the initiative of the small unit leader. But there is this stigma that we just follow orders rotely. And it's, it's, it couldn't be farther from the truth. The military's definition, the definition of leadership, provide purpose, direction, and motivation for a common, for a group of people to accomplish a task, right? And, and I believe leadership is getting people to do what you want them to do because they want to do it, because they understand the why. And so that gives them freedom. Another aspect of kind of military doctrine is understanding commander's intent two levels up. So if you can understand that and you're nested within that intent, then the military can accomplish great things very independently and, and, and delegate down to subordinate leaders. It's the key to delegation to make sure that people understand the why and create a culture that, that they have the ability to do things that are legal, moral, and ethical with, uh, with exercising their initiative. Hmm. Okay. So I think we have a lot of educating to do and a lot of, uh, like you say, um, whether it's not necessarily paradigms, but at least mental images of, of, uh, of our veterans that have to be re reimagined in order to really help them to transition. So that I think is a great place for us to talk about your business. So explain to, to my audience, please. What, do, what was your vision? What is your purpose as it relates to vector franchising? VetCorp, excuse me, franchising, and, 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 and people who want to franchise in general, what, what has been your experience with it? What advice could you offer? So let's go one at a time with that. Yeah, so as I mentioned, you know, coming from the Dean of the Army's Engineer School and the challenge I had and I understood, it was, essentially it was an unsolvable problem. I couldn't get the credentialing fixed for this skilled trades, right? And it was just a complete accident that I they fell in the lap of this opportunity. Um, a, a gentleman, David Howard, who's my now is my business partner, was running a forensics engineering company. I'm a licensed professional engineer. I have a bachelor's in engineering from West Point, a master's from University of Washington. And because of those credentials that actually do translate relatively well, I had the opportunity to meet with him and interview. And I thought I was interviewing for an engineering management position with this forensics engineering company. He had other thoughts and he, he was the first C-suite level executive that had military experience. So he understood, he had the lens to, to see me and understand what, what all the other things I did from a leadership perspective was. So he, he offered me the opportunity to start VetCore. Well, it turns out in restoration, water damage, uh, mold remediation, fire damage, that those skill sets typically are not governed by a licensing authority. They're typically governed by a, a, a national training certification. So much different than the typical skilled trades. These are, it's a, I would say it's a semi-skilled trade. So if you want to become a water damage restoration technician, essentially it's a three-day class and it's a national certification that's transportable throughout the U.S. So when I saw this opportunity, I said, it's a way to solve this problem in another, in another means, mm -hmm. right? We can create this, this company and this brand known for timely, quality, reliable service and the value of veterans, that it helps people in their time of need, very consistent with what people think about the military. Hey, who are you gonna call? They're reliable, they come to us in the time of need. And so I, I really hadn't considered it, but then when the opportunity was presented, I said, heck yes, 
because it really gets to those opportunity creations that I was trying to do, but I can do it through another method now. I love and so it. started the company and we just built that reputation and built the training systems and, and I built a team around, got the band back together. Several of the people I'd served with in the past are still on the team. And we generated that brand awareness and built that company. And from there have grown it and then decided to, to franchise it and, and try and expand it even further. Cool. Yeah, that's there's a lot of good stuff in that. And it actually brought to mind something else. Um, I, I know it's not direct to what you said, but with COVID in particular and, and, and so many issues relating to what I would say are the, the, the emotional well-being. You know, when I think of veterans, one of the challenges, you know, that I think about often are is, is, is the, the, the mental and emotional health. Uh, from what are often very traumatic and jarring experiences and people having to deal with that in many cases for the rest of their lives. So as I'm thinking about you bringing people on, I'm imagining directly or indirectly that a lot of thought has to be given to not just helping train people to make them quality employees and do the job that needs to be done for your business, but also to manage those other elements that maybe other businesses historically didn't have to deal with as much, but I think now with COVID have, are, are dealing with more than ever. Issues of personal safety, issues of emotional well-being, uh, managing a remote workforce in many cases. So, so talk a little bit about that, Paul. What are, what are some of the things that you feel leaders can be doing, not only to demonstrate greater empathy, but actually to help people who need support, not only do they need a job, but they need a more holistic approach to leadership. Yeah, you know, the, the, the challenge with veterans, uh, and this, there's, this, there's, there's this concept that 22 veterans a day commit suicide. That, that's just wrong. Um, it's inaccurate. I, well, as soon as that came out, I checked it. it there is a challenge with that, um, but it's not to that, that same extent. And, and it is greater than the, the civilian society. But if, if we've seen one thing throughout the past two years with COVID, it's that we are all challenged with kind of our emotional well-being. I believe that the key to with veterans or anybody is to create purpose in their life, right? To show how they can be part of something bigger than themselves. And, and veterans are really good at that because that's what the military is all about, right? But then they transition to that uh, they transition to the civilian world and they lose that greater purpose. And many of us don't have that greater purpose. And, and as you seek that and you can't find it, man, there's, there are these gaps in our lives and we need that. We need to feel part of a team. We're a very um, social, um, human beings are very social. They need to be part of a tribe. There's a great book called Tribe on Homecoming and Belonging that talks about the challenges that veterans face. So I think any leader, regardless of whether you're leading veterans or, or, uh, or non-veterans, in this time especially, they've got to establish purpose, communicate purpose throughout their organization, and communicate where their team members fit in, how they are the cogs in the machine to create the greater good that they're trying to achieve. And when we do that, great things happen. The challenge is veterans miss that, and they 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 typically come out and they're looking for jobs, not um, opportunities to be part of something bigger than themselves. And we don't even know it sometimes. And, and then when we find that, and I believe that's what we're finding, that's what we're, that's what we're creating. 
the purpose um, and, and the cultures, norms, and values, very similar to the military, but we're still helping people in an industry that, that needs it. Love it. So for everyone who's a veteran out there, or if you've got veterans in your, in your community, your family, um, I think the message here, certainly there are a lot of messages of value, you know, obviously to help people feel as comfortable and as ready to get out into the workforce as possible at the end of their, of their service but also to be selective. You know, sometimes we're desperate, we wanna find jobs right away. And so we look for the first opportunity, but the more that you can dig down, what I'm hearing from you, Paul, is the need to dig down for purpose. Not only does the company have to be governed by some sense of why, some sense of purpose, but also to ask yourself, how will that manifest for you on a personal level? You know, when companies do it for their employees, they talk about how their work, how their product, service, et cetera, is changing lives for people, that's awesome, that's great, and that makes it easy, right? Not every company does that. Sometimes you have to look for it on your own, but make that part of what you do, almost like your daily ritual, because this way it drives you, especially when you're feeling, you know, there, there's probably, I'm imagining that there's this uh, drop-off in a sense, like I was just part of the greatest entity in the world, not only greatest training, but talk about purpose and mission and all of that. I mean, the armed forces, it doesn't get much better than that. On the other, and now I'm working for like, you know, some mom and yeah. pop shop somewhere. Profit. I'm doing whatever, like right. what's the, it's so the drop-off is massive. And we say like, what am I doing? Is this really what I'm in this world to do? But if you think again about who's the end user, how am I serving them? How am I making a positive impact? looking for purpose outside of work as well. I think all of that really creates an opportunity for people to live an entire life of purpose, not just four to 20 some odd years, but an entire continuity and say, I, I really lived for something bigger than self. And I think deep down, we all recognize, you mentioned tribe, we need it. but we need it. It's really part of the human condition, whether you're, you're a religious person or not, we all sense deep down that we can't just be this isolated entity sort of floating through space. We've got to be here for a purpose or reason, and we want to be able to tap into that. So, so thank you for that message. I do want to ask you, Paul, about one thing that I ask all of my guests, and that is about failures. Uh, because the greatness of leaders is not just dealing with the, with the challenges in the moment, but growing from them, learning from them, becoming better. You know, I, I often pitch um, the book that I've written which is uh, Becoming the New Boss, The New Leader's Guide to Sustained Success, which I wrote really out of a series of failures and simultaneously successes um, that happened in school leadership, which was my background, but my ability to see what did I do right, what did I do wrong, and how do I, as a result, become better and stronger moving forward. So I want to hear about a failure in your, um, not because we're looking to just talk about failures, but a failure that you grew from, a failure that you learned from, and something that could be a lesson for everybody listening. Well, you, you know, you talk about failures. I mean, and there's this concept, we wanna fail and fail fast and learn, right? Everyone fails, but successful people are the ones that learn from those failures, turn them around very quickly and turn them into successes. So I'll give you an example. The number one reason that small businesses fail is that they're, they're undercapitalized. And the same thing is, is true for franchise systems, because people go into franchising and think that, well, if I have one business and it's successful, I create another franchise, now I have two businesses. Well, 
because of the margins and the royalties and things, you have to build up to 40 to 100 franchises to become sustainably profitable because you're always investing forward, right? So it's the same same challenge. So I learned that with my initial business um, that success could cause failure, cash flow, right? So in, in our case, typically, um, you know, we start a job today, we're getting paid for that job and very reliably and very fairly, usually from insurance carriers who have great credit ratings and deep pockets and et cetera, but typically 30 days from now because of the time it takes to do the job, the time it takes to invoice, the time it takes for the administration and then to get paid, right? So if I don't understand that, and, and I didn't understand that at the time, particularly when things like hurricanes happen. So restoration companies, on a daily basis, we deal with dishwashers, ice makers, hot water heaters, air conditioning units, things that break around the house. But when a hurricane happens and you've got significant roof damage and you're putting temporary roof tarps on, you've got water coming in people's homes, right? The amount, the volume of claims that happened exceed everyone's capacity and it exceeds an insurance company's capacity to pay rapidly, right? So, okay, we want to get out and we want to help. We want to complete the mission, help as many people as possible. So if we're helping people immediately, and now we're creating overtime and more demand, right? But we don't get paid for 30 days. That's anywhere between two and three payroll cycles now that I, as a business owner, have to carry from a cash flow perspective, right? I, I didn't plan for that because I'm sitting there going, wow, we got more jobs. We're helping more people. Great, great, great. We're going to get paid, but I got to get there. I got to get to that, to my payday. Because in between my payday to getting paid for all the jobs that we do, I've got to pay all my employees. I've got to pay for all the materials and equipment up front. And I didn't understand the, the ebbs and flows of cash flow. And as, an, and as a new business, we, we achieved that success very early. But also, if you're a new business, it's very hard to get business credit. You can't get a line of credit. And, and so I learned those lessons the hard way. I ended up having to take money out of an IRA to fund my, to fund um, my business. I couldn't get it back in time. So I paid an early withdrawal penalty. It was the cost of capital. And now I, what I do, and I tell people a great thing about franchising is if you join our, a franchise system, any in, in particular, but it, ours, right? It, you're, what you're paying for is my scars, <laughs> my, my lessons learned. Now you're going to go out and learn other lessons. Just don't learn the same ones that I learned. We'll, 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 we'll share them with you. Yeah. So you don't make the same mistakes and your mistakes aren't as severe as ours. Experience is a great teacher. That's for sure. Okay, Paul, fantastic. So let's transition now to rapid fire, go through these quicker and really to the point. And I love, I'm sure you're out there quite a bit. So you're seeing messages and on billboards all the time. If you could plaster one that wasn't just a promotion for your business with a message, for the masses, what would it be? Yeah, this is a, it's a great infographic that I found and I use it now all the time, uh, really for recruiting franchisees and teammates. But I think it's great advice for anybody. If you can find the intersection of what you love doing, what the world needs, what you can be paid for and what you're good at, the intersection of those four things, you'll never work another day in your life because you can earn an honest living, you'll be fulfilled, you'll be a part of something bigger than yourself. And it, it, frankly, it's a way also to build wealth. We believe that we have that opportunity. And you don't necessarily have to be um, 
in the franchise world is here's a, a good example, right? People love working out. You know, a lot of people do. And, and so, okay, they want to buy a gym. Well, the person that's running the gym isn't the person that's working out, right? So you, you want to be good at running a business. You also want to be good at learning and you can learn other things and learn to be good at other skill sets, learn to be good at rest, running a restoration business, right? We're going to have to, we're going to have to make that billboard pretty big to get all that in there. <laughs> but I do agree Fourth with thing, the, info, the infographic would be great. Okay, let's move on to a fun fact about vets that very few people know. Yeah, I, we've mentioned this and it's probably woven in throughout all this. Uh, they're lifelong learners and, and people don't understand this. One of the advantages that I talk about and, and why is that? Because there's a culture of, of failing, learning, failing, learning. There's this place called the National Training Center in the Mojave Desert where the army would go once a month, a new unit would rotate through there. And there was a unit for a long time that looked exactly like the, the Soviet army. And uh, what we learned is after action reviews, AARs, what happened, why it happened, and how we can improve. And every vet is equipped with that. And, so, and the last one, Paul, uh, a productivity tip that helps you to get more done. Yeah, it's a great book that I read a long time ago called First Things First by Stephen Covey and Roger Merrill. Uh, know the difference between what's urgent and what's important. Concentrate on what's important, and then things will never become urgent. Love it. Okay, so let everybody on Lead to Succeed know how they could reach out to you, how they can connect with you, your franchise, but really your purpose, and, um, and all the great work you're doing for vets. Yeah, so thanks for the opportunity. It, it, you know, connect with me on LinkedIn, Facebook, Paul Huzar, H-U-S-Z-A-R. The company is vetcoreservices.com, our website. You can for, find more about us. There's vid videos about, links to videos about franchising, about the franchise opportunity, about veteran advocacy, about hiring veterans. Um, any of those methods work, and I'd love to reach out. And even if you're not interested in us specifically, but you want to learn more about how to help vets, how to employ vets, or if you're a veteran looking for opportunities, we want to help. Awesome. Okay, Paul, as I told you, you got to leave something great for the very end. Here's that opportunity. Share with us, please, one final life lesson. Uh, you know, live, love, learn, and leave a legacy. Um, live every day to its fullest. Love what you're doing. Love the people around and laugh about it but really focus on leaving a legacy. When you leave a legacy, um, it, it's a really a part of being part of doing something bigger and, and being part of something bigger than yourself. I love it. Okay, so it seems like we do things in fours around here, which is great. Anyway, Paul, it's been an absolute pleasure. So glad that we were able to spend some time together, getting to know one another, having this important conversation about vets, about the military, about leadership, about so many things. I think we really hit on a lot, so a lot of value here. Thank you so much again for being with me today. And uh, I look forward to sharing your message soon. And uh, I hope that everybody will reach out to you because clearly you have a lot uh, that the world needs right now. Well, thanks so much. And thanks for caring about our nation's heroes. Appreciate it. Absolutely. I appreciate them every day. Take care now. Thanks so much for listening to this episode and for investing in yourself so that you can lead to succeed. Before you go, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Your feedback gives the show more social proof and encourages more folks to listen.